Welcome to the Dwelling Place Church audio podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's message. We pray God speaks to you today through this message and through His Word. For more information about our church, be sure to visit us on the web at dwellingplacemovement.org. Now, it's time to listen to this week's message. Ephesians chapter 2, Paul has spent the last chapter, Ephesians chapter 1, um, talking and bequeathing us, if you will, on the beauties of the gospel. He now, in chapter 2, turns his attention to the body of people that the gospel creates. The body of people that the gospel creates is namely the church. Now, the passage we look at today is extremely relevant to us, I think, for two reasons. First of all, Sociologists who study spirituality in America seem to say something right now. They say two seemingly contradictory things that are very true in regards to American spiritual lives. They say, first and foremost, that spiritual interest in our nation is at an all-time high right now. Religiously hungry people. They're desiring spiritual experience. They're desiring a power from above, so to speak. People are attuned to the spiritual world. But at the same time, there is a decided move away from what we call institutional religion. There's a decided move away from what we call formal gathering. 81% of Americans answered yes to this question. You ready? 81%. Do you believe that you can be a very good Christian without ever attending the church? 81% of our nation said yes. You can be a great Christian, a fruitful, effective Christian without ever attending church. Well, Paul is going to get into that in these verses. The second reason I think that this passage is so important to us is because Paul in it gives what I call, and I'm calling today, a prescription for racial and cultural unity within the church. He gives us a clear understanding, a prescription. Because you got to understand, racial strife in Paul's day and Paul's churches was just like it is today. Because for the first couple of thousand years, you got to remember, anytime God moved on the planet, anytime God did something on the planet, God's people had always been the Jews. In other words, it was, it was an exclusive reality so that God could later be inclusive with the person of Jesus. But no, make no mistake about it. God only had one people. It was the Jewish people. God and what he he desired to do in the earth happened through that people. And now Jesus shows up with this new whosoever will kind of program. Come and all of a sudden now you got these Gentiles entering in the church. And lest we forget, these Gentiles had uh, were sitting in churches next to Jews and they had their own Gentile customs and they had their Gentile fashions and Gentile music preferences and Gentile worship teams and Gentile political viewpoints. And so it was... It was a mess. It was a mess that we find ourselves in in the New Testament church. Now, here we are 2,000 years later, and it's still a mess. It's an absolute mess. Many people, I think in our day and age, even in our nation, we love the concept of a multicultural society, but achieving that has been proven very difficult, okay? I don't have to get into the political political banter today to know that how charged this is in our culture right now. It is majorly charged. I read an article not too long ago in the, in the magazine, the, actually read it online, but called The Atlantic. And The Atlantic did this study where they, they, they picked up people and found people who desired, it was their own preference to move into a multicultural neighborhood. So out of their own preference in these places in America, 
they moved into these multicultural neighborhoods. And what they found was very alarming, that even though they moved into a multicultural neighborhood, they ended up hanging out with people that were just like them. So even within the context of the neighborhood, they gravitated to the ones that were like them. They took this on further, and they, they saw this in college universities. I know for me, and, and when I went to Lee University, you went in with a bunch of guys to the gym, and what happened? You were going to play some ball. All the white guys got down to one side of the court and were playing, and then all the black guys got down. Now, one reason is that because the white guys get destroyed by the black guys. But, but, but put that aside, we tend to always move towards people that are like us. So many people who love the idea of a multicultural church are fine with it until you start doing things that are culturally uncomfortable to them. And I want to confess at the start of this message, I am like that sometimes as well. I love the concept of a multicultural church, but living in that reality can sometimes be very difficult. And can I just be honest for a minute? Based on some of your Facebook feeds, based on some of your Instagram feeds, uh, there's people in this congregation that are all about racial reconciliation as well, but we really don't do anything about it. You are what modern sociologists call slacktivists. Slacktivists. You know what slacktivists are? Slacktivists are people who hold some political persuasion or idea via online presence, but don't ever really do anything about it in their own life. That's why I'm preaching today's message. Being a multicultural church requires more than slacktivists. To actually become a multicultural church, we have to be more than slacktivists. We got to be more than people who just speak about a desire for multicultural unity and actually do some intentional actions to connect cultures that are very different, very, very different. Uh, this is, of course, not my term. The, these are people who champion things on Facebook but don't live out in real life. These are, these are slacktivists. Now, this passage not only shows us the importance of cultural and racial diversity in the church, but it shows us how to achieve it, how to move, if you will, from beyond um, what I call virtue signaling and slacktivism to actual true gospel community. Now, I want to be clear here, very clear. Please don't hear me this morning as saying that we somehow are anywhere close to having this figured out. At Dwelling Place Woodstock, we are nowhere even close yet to figuring this out. This passage has a lot to teach us. It has a lot to communicate to us about diversity, about unity in diversity in the church. So I've been asking God to make us more multicultural. It's, in fact, one of our own core values. You'll see at the top of your, your card we have four anchor values. Those four anchor values are worship, discipleship, fellowship, and stewardship. Everything that we do as a church community falls under those values. Within those anchor values, we have eight core values. And one of those core values is multicultural fellowship. It's interesting that when this church was planted years ago, at one time with only about 50 people that were attending, there were, I think, six different languages that were represented even in that 50 different people. So gone from its outset, God's from its inception, desires for our church to be very multicultural. So here's what we're going to do, all right? What I want to do is what I love to do. I want to walk you through this passage verse by verse. And as we walk through the passage verse by verse and let God teach us, we're then going to arrive at two questions. The first question is this, 
why each of us should be deeply committed to the local church. And then number two, how can that be achieved within our churches? How can that type of unity be achieved in our own context? Let's start in chapter two, verse 11. Paul says, therefore, remember that at one time you were Gentiles. Now, please please understand, Gentiles just means non-Jew. Gentile just means non-ethnic Jew, okay? You're not born as a Jew, Many, if not most, of the Ephesian leaders were completely Gentiles. Most of the Ephesians were not Jews. He said, you were Gentiles separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. Do you see the parallels there? He puts them in progression and he puts alienated from Christ, being separate from the commonwealth of Israel because... They were one and the same in the New Testament. What do you mean? If you wanted to belong to God in the Old Testament, you had to belong to Israel. If you wanted God to work in your life in the Old Testament, you had to be a part of the nation of Israel. You had to become Jewish. Think of Ruth. What did she do? She became a Jew. Think of Rahab. What happened? She had to become a Jew to pursue God. She had to become a part of the nation of Israel in order to have right relationship with God. So he says you are a foreigner to God or foreigner to Christ. Christ because you are separated from the commonwealth of Israel. Now he goes on and he says to these Ephesian Gentile Christians, you were once foreigners to the covenant, look at verse 12, of promise. You were without hope and you were without God in the world. Verse 13, but now, everybody say, but now. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Now think about this. When Paul is writing to the Ephesian leaders, you've got to understand literally around this Jewish temple was a literal wall. It was about 10 feet tall. It was made of really thick stone and it had a sign on it that read, and I quote, any Gentile entering beyond this wall will only have himself to blame for his ensuing death. Any Gentile coming beyond this wall will blame himself for the death that awaits him. They clearly had not mastered the concept of the seeker-friendly service, okay? They did not know seeker-friendly church back then. This wall separated in the Jewish mind the good from the bad, the clean from the unclean, the safe from the unsafe. Now let's stop here. Can we just stop in 2019 and acknowledge that though we are politically correct enough to not post signs like that on our churches anymore, we still have walls in our minds and we still have walls in our hearts and we still have walls in our experiences that separate the right kind of people from the wrong kind of people, the good from the bad, the safe from the unsafe. Maybe they're racial. Maybe it's white, it's black, it's Hispanic, it's Asian. Maybe it's walls that, that, that are come because of race. Maybe it's because of, uh, of educational levels. Maybe the walls are educational levels. Maybe you only feel comfortable around people who have a similar education level to you. They went to a school that was similar to yours. Or maybe you don't like people who are educated at all because you think that they're very untrustworthy, untrustworthy and very snobbish. Maybe, maybe the wall separating you and your mind is the successful from the unsuccessful. You, there are those who have what it takes and those who don't have what it takes. And you like to only spend your time with people who have what it takes. People who are successful in the world's eyes. Maybe it could 
could be a, a wall between the good-looking, popular people and the nerds. Maybe it could be the people that are really, really connected socially and those that are not. Maybe it's the political walls. Maybe you think people with one philosophy and political philosophy are almost all good, but the others on the other side can't help but be bad. Maybe it's those the wall in your mind between those good families versus those with messed up families. Maybe it's single or married. Maybe it's married or divorced or recently divorced or divorced a long time ago. I don't know whatever it is, but the reality is we in America are more polarized than we've ever been in our history. We really are as polarized as we've ever really been. Listen, whatever you feel a natural kinship or bond with, and, and who is it that you feel, so to speak, you think of as other, like outsiders and foreigner, like unlike you, unsafe, even potential enemies? I want to ask a hard question. You ready? Just ask yourself, what is it about someone that makes you meet them and you've never met them before and you just sort of relax and say, ah, these are my people. These are my people. Who is your people? Who is your tribe? Is it primarily primarily those who share the same skin color with you? Is it primarily those who make the same amount of money as you? I know some rich people, sadly enough, who just feel tense when they're around people of modest income. And I know modest income people are just really, really tense around people with great rich income. Or maybe it's those with a that you're, you're comfortable with those of the core political leaning like you have. Like you find someone who's a Republican, you're like, oh, okay, 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 we can be friends. You're Republican. Or maybe you find somebody that hates Republicans, and you're like, oh, okay, we can be friends. Let's, let's be close. There's, there's nothing, listen, church, wrong with those natural affinities, of course, but what they end up doing is they end up erecting walls that put divisions within the church of Jesus Christ. They begin to put up walls. Christ, the Bible said, tore down those dividing walls. He tore them down. Paul said in Christ, there's only one category of people, sinners. That's it. There's only one category of people, they're sinners. When it came to God, we're all on the outside. Did you know this? We're all on the outside trying to get in. There were no good people and bad people. There were no winners or losers. There were no people who have it together and dysfunctional people. There were only bad, dead, sin-sick rebels, children of Satan, sons and daughters of disobedience without God and without hope in the world. We were all that at one time and Jesus' blood, Paul says in verse 14, he cleansed us from it all. Can somebody say amen? He, he, he rescued us. He redeemed us. He tore down the wall. Now, now, let me pause here. Think about how revolutionary this was. Think about this. At the time Paul wrote these words, the 10-foot tall wall in the temple was still there. It had been constructed by the command of God. Build this wall. And Paul, who lived more in the temple than he did in his own house, he spent more time in the temple than he did in his house. He's standing there in the temple and saying, even though this wall exists physically, before God, the wall's gone. Before God, the wall is not even seen. In other words, before God, all of our distinctions are gone too, even if America still wants to make them. Before God, all of our distinctions as the church of Jesus Christ are gone. They're obliterated. The wall of hostility has been done away with. It's been done away with. Paul said, clearly, this is the reality. Verse 15, furthermore, 
Paul says that Jesus' resurrection created a whole new race of humanity that every person who belongs to Christ now shares. Look at verse 15. He said, notice, in his flesh he made of no effect. He made of no effect the law consisting of commands and expressed in regulations. Why did he make them of no effect? Because the laws cannot bring salvation or resurrection. The laws cannot do what the laws were meant to do. And that's to bring about a holy people. But they're powerless because they're weakened by the flesh. And he says, so Christ made them of no effect. Why? Why? Here it is. So that he might create in himself the one man, the one new race. Jesus wants to create one new race from the two, from the Jew and the Gentile, resulting in peace. You got to understand, church, Christ was not raised, Paul said, as a Jew. Christ was not raised as a Gentile. He was raised as a completely new man so that he would create a completely new race of people. It's what theologians call the third race. Your first race, I'm white. Your second race is what you aren't. I ain't Asian. I ain't Hispanic, but my third race is that I am a follower of Jesus Christ. And the third race doesn't do away with the first race, but you better believe the third race is more important than the first race. For those of us who are in Jesus Christ, we've been washed with the blood. We've been reconciled to God, and we have brothers and sisters that live around this globe today. The creation of the new kind of man resulted in peace, peace, Peace. Why? Because in his death and resurrection, Christ has removed anything, listen to me, anything that would have made us feel superior to other people, and he's made relatively insignificant everything that distinguishes us from one another. And he gives us, in exchange for that, something more glorious and common than we ever are by the people we're born from. This is what Jesus does. In Jesus, there's only one kind of sinner, dead. And there's only one kind of believer, alive in God, alive in Christ, fully adopted into his family, partakers of God's glorious inheritance. The end, hallelujah, can somebody say amen? This is what Jesus has done. Praise God for his goodness and his grace to us. He continues on. This passage is so rich. Look at verse 18. For through him. We have both access. Pay attention to the Trinitarian language in these next two verses. Pay attention. We both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. And in him, the whole building being put together grows into a holy temple unto the Lord. And then the church you're sitting in today is called Dwelling Place. It comes from this next verse. And in him, you are being built together for God's dwelling in the Spirit. Did you see what happened? The whole Trinity's here. What, when it comes to the church... Please understand, the Father is the architect, the Son is the foundation, and the Spirit is the builder. The whole Trinity is involved in the building of the local church. The architect, the great divine architect, the Father, the Son becomes the chief cornerstone, the foundation, and the Spirit becomes the builder. Now Paul then goes on to chapter 3. I can't read verses 1 through 9 for the sake of time. Go read them this afternoon. But I want to tell you what verses 1 through 9 say. Paul then, for the next nine verses, all he does is he talks about how my entire calling in life is to point towards this unified, multicultural body that was one of my specific life callings. And he gets to verse 10, and he ends with one of the 
the most amazing statements in the book of Ephesians. This is what he says in verse 10 of Ephesians chapter 3. This, and when he says this, he's talking about this unified church, one in Christ. These people who are multicultures, but yet still one in Jesus. He said, this is so. That God's multifaceted wisdom now may be made known through the church to the rulers and authorities in the heavens. How will America know that Jesus is who he says he is? How will America know and understand that God is who he says he is? Is it by the brilliant sermons that we lay out each and every Sunday? No. Is it because we have... A, a pastor and pastors who can take the scriptures and show how they all tie together? No, according to this verse, the world, the world around us will know that our God and see his multifaceted wisdom and witness his loving kindness when they see a group of people who have little bit in common but have a deep love for Jesus Christ and their deep love for Jesus Christ brings them together in God. Church, how can a divided church reach a divided world? The only way to reach a divided world is to be a united church. It's the only way. Jesus prayed in John 17, I prayed, Father, that they may be one. One. I never forget, a couple years ago, I heard Bill Hybels speaking. Now, Bill Hybels, of course, you, you know the straight atrocity that's happened there at Willow Creek outside the suburbs of Chicago. But, but Bill Hybels, uh, he pioneered the very first mega church. He's the one who invented what we call seeker-friendly church. He did this about 40 years ago, and it worked. He built the entire church on what we call the homogeneity principle. Homogeneity means that you should only try to reach one group of people in your community. So you tailor all the sermons, you tailor all of the music, you tailor all the illustrations to get one group of people. And it worked. They grew to about 30,000 people. But I never forget a couple years ago, I heard him being interviewed, and they said, Bill, what would you have done different? He said, I would have not pursued the homogeneity principle. And this guy said, what do you mean you are not a pursuit? He said, because now that I read the New Testament, I realize that the greatest way God shows off his wisdom and the greatest way God shows off his glory in the culture is that when people who don't have anything in common come together and gather together at the cross of Jesus Christ. And this pastor said, are you meaning to tell me you would have not pursued that? You would, you would have been better with not, you would have been better with taking your church from 30,000 to 15,000 and had 15,000 that didn't come to know Christ. That would be better than you pursuing the principal and he said oh yeah 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 listen interviewer your your perspective is far too narrow he said you've got to understand the evangelistic effectiveness of a church that's a unified body in Christ would be greater you would have greater evangelistic effectiveness for a church that's smaller in numbers rather than just padding a satellite campus with the same people increasing numbers well that deeply affected me listening to that it shapes how we see the church. So let me give you a couple action points. You ready? A couple action points that we can take from this passage. Number one, should be very obvious. You should be very involved in the local church. Now, I know I'm speaking to the choir today, right? You're here. You should be very involved in the local church. The church, Paul tells us, is what God's building in the earth. God is building the church. And as I showed you, literally every member of the Trinity is involved in it. Can I ask us a question? If every member of the Trinity is involved in building the church, you really think it's optional for you? <laughs> this is what I want to tell people. You think it's optional for you when the Godhead is involved? The whole Godhead is involved in building his redeemed community. 
Each member, Paul says, is a, is a key part of this building. Now notice what the Bible says. Each one is a precious stone. It doesn't say each one is a brick. Bricks all look the same. Bricks are boring. They all look the same. He says, no, you're not going to look the same. Each of you is going to be a precious stone, and a precious stone is unique, and each one becomes unique and is placed into the erection of this building. God places his gifts, his spirit into each of us to do his work. He places in each of us a, a desire to share our own unique identity. Listen, every person in this room, every person live streaming today, you have a uniqueness in Jesus. My God, listen to me this morning. You are called to display the beauty of Christ to this culture. You are called to display the beauty and the wonder of God to the people around you by expressing your God-given uniqueness. Listen, your uniqueness is is what makes you useful in the hands of God. It's your uniqueness, it's your peculiarity, it's your clear flavor that enables God to use you to bring out the God flavors in the world. Folks, if we would get this, if we could as a church and a local congregation get this, it would change how we see the church. The place where the Spirit of God has chosen to reside today is in the church. The way you experience His presence and His power is in the church. He's put his gifts in every member, not just the pastor. He's put his gifts in every life, not just those that are in leadership. He's put his gifts in every individual, not just your small group leader. Not just your connect group leader. Another analogy, Paul uses the analogy of the body. And I love this one because in the body, it just becomes so clear. Now think about it real quick. The head accomplishes its purposes via the members of the body. So my brain, let's say my brain's Jesus. Okay, so if my brain's Jesus, when my brain, for example, receives a message from my left elbow, and my left elbow tells my brain, I'm itching, I'm itching, I'm itching, I'm itching, I'm itching, I'm itching, itch me, itch me. The brain does not send some magical brain power juice down from the brain to zap the left itch and make it go away. What the brain does is the brain says to brother right elbow, brother right hand, brother right hand. Left brother elbow is itching really bad. Go over and take care of it. So brother right arm, brother right hand comes over and takes care of the elbow. Listen, the exact same thing is true. God does not zap you when you're in your own bedroom. God doesn't zap you in an altar. When you have a problem, guess what God does? He, the brain, says to another member, go meet the need. So listen, when you separate yourself from the local church, you are separating yourself from the power and the presence of Almighty God. The way that God wants to touch you, the way that God wants to meet your needs, the way that God wants to minister to you is not by sending brain juice. It's by calling another member with a spiritual gift to meet your need. It's asking another hand to scratch. It's asking another foot to take a step. That means if you disconnect yourself from the church, you disconnect yourself from the power of God. Thus, when people ask... <laughs> I don't mean to be, I do mean to be candid, but very honest. When people ask, how much should I be involved in the church? Here's what I say. To the extent that you want God to work in your life. I don't know how much you want him to work. Do you want him to work a little bit? Because if you just stay home and listen to the podcast, you're only getting one member's gifting. You only want one member's gifting? You don't want to be touched by everybody else's gifting? 
I mean, you, don't, you, you only want the small fraction of the body that God has baptized you into? You only want to be blessed in the way that one member can touch you? Or do you want to be blessed by the whole priesthood of believers? Do you want your life connected to all the priesthood of believers that they are able to minister to your life in ways that only they can minister? In fact, I would be so bold to say, you have no right to ask for the help of God if you intentionally separate yourself from the means of that help. If I'm asking God for help and then I separate myself from the means in which God desires to help. People say, God, I need direction in my life. God says, oh, that wisdom is from the spirit. And guess where my spirit is? It's housed in the body of the people called the church. So go to church. People say, God, I, I, need, I need my marriage to be helped. Again, go to church. God, I'm lonely. God says, go to church. God, I'm depressed. Go to church. God, I, I don't understand you. Go to church. God, I don't know what you're doing in my life. Go to church. If you'll go to church, the people of God will surround you. The life of God will flow through them and they'll touch your life and lead you in the journey that Christ has for you. This is God's desire. We're so fiercely individualistic in our Western world that we have lost this corporate nature of the church. In fact, I put in your card, every time Jesus in the gospel says, whatever you ask in my name, it shall be granted to you. If you believe, you shall receive. Not one time does Jesus ever make that promise and use the second person singular, you. He always says, you all. Not one time does Jesus give a promise to a single person of whatever they ask, they shall receive. It's always you all, whatever you ask. It's second person plural. That whatever you all ask, it shall be granted by my Father in heaven. This is a concept that God wants us to learn. Listen, I just say it this way. If you want God to work in your life, you have to be a part of the church. You see, sitting on the sidelines of the church, even if you're hearing the best sermons in the world, and what you're not here, means that you're only experiencing a small fraction of what God wants you to know. you got to be involved, very, very involved. Our churches in America have what a, a very bad problem, what we call ninja Christians. Now, ninjas are cool, but ninjas slip in and out unnoticed. That's what ninjas do. They just come in, they sit on the edges, and they're, they're out, right? It comes to the end of the gathering. It's time to bow their heads. They're gone. They're ninja Christians. They come in, they come out. Listen, ninjas are cool, but they make terrible church members. Let me go back to my illustration again. Remember the building analogy? Imagine the ugly pile of bricks that's over there in the ground, and it's just piled up because the contractor was going to use them to build the house, but every other brook, brook looks pretty, and it's put in the house, and there's this ugly pile of bricks. That's what the disconnected Christian from the church looks like, just an ugly pile of bricks, just, just not fit together, not, not knowing their place not uniquely understood and fit into the people of God. So join, 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 get involved, get involved. Number two, dwelling place should be known for its unity and diversity. We should be known for our unity and diversity. I just want to thank God for a minute and celebrate something. God has brought us such a long way on this. Can we just celebrate it? They say right now in America, in order to be a truly multicultural church, a multicultural church is one with no more than 80% of its people having one culture. No more than 80% of people have one culture. That number is not arbitrary, by the way, because once you get 20%, once, once quote-unquote, the minorities hit 20%, they start to feel like their voice is heard, their influence is felt, and the first-time guests who come in don't feel out of place. 
That's 20%. Best of my knowledge, by working through our entire planning center and me working through it and looking into individuals within our church, we are somewhere around, culturally, we're somewhere around the 12 to 14% of different cultures. That doesn't mean different races. It means multicultural. Okay. See, a lot of times people just want a multicolored church because multicolored church is about image. They don't want a multicultural church because that's about value. See, they just want multi. They want multicolored church because that's about what we look like. But the, but but the multicultural church is the cultural church that embraces all cultures and says, "Yeah, we are one in Jesus Christ." Last year we were maybe nine percent, so we're up, but from that, but but we still got a long ways to go. We in our own community got a long ways to go. So praise God, I celebrate that, but that's the core value of our church. We've got to move forward. So what I want to reemphasize today is that, that one of the best ways we can demonstrate the wisdom and power of God is being known for our unity and diversity. If you look at verse 10 again of chapter 3, he says, This unified church is so that God's multifaceted wisdom may be known to or through the church to the rulers and the authorities of the heavens. It's how we display the multifaceted wisdom of God to the world around us. I've told you, a group of people all sharing one culture getting together is not miraculous. That's not miraculous. You get that in any football game, any George Strait concert, Mercedes Benz Stadium, the Chris Stapleton. Any rock concert, any political rally, this one group of people. But when you have a group of people who have little in common except for a common experience of God's grace, then that points to the magnitude of the gospel and the power of the new man that's created by the resurrection church. The world should literally look at the church in America and should be so bewildered and saying, why do these people love each other? They don't look like us. They don't look like each other. Why do they get along? Well, what's going on here? I told you before. I've used the example of Simon the Zealot. You know Simon the Zealot? Simon the Zealot, imagine the, the conversations that happened with Jesus and the 12 disciples. See, in Israel's time, a zealot, there was a particular political party in, uh, in um, Israel that had political issues because they had political issues like we had political issues. And, and they, these Jews believed that they were to work together to throw off the Roman oppression because they thought the Roman oppression was not from God. So they were called the zealots. Well, then you had a whole nother political party on the other side that they believed that they were to submit to Roman authority and listen to Roman authority and take care of what the Romans asked them to do. So imagine, you've now got Simon the zealot and you've got Matthew the tax collector and the same 12 people. Now, you cannot convince me that they did not have interesting conversations around the campfires at night. This dude is taking up money from Jews to give to Caesar and Rome this dude's trying to rebel against Caesar and Rome and now Jesus is asking them to be committed to a greater unity folks we act like what we're experiencing in America is new it ain't new it happened when Jesus was on the earth and yet Jesus and his gospel was greater than either adherence to a political party that they were greater they had a, a common so imagine this you got Nicodemus who is a Pharisee and you got a Samaritan woman at the well both following Jesus you got a woman caught in adultery in John chapter 8 and you got a Pharisee hanging out with Jesus coming after Jesus and people wonder why do these guys and gals love each other so much well, what's going on with these individuals but that kind of unity is hard I've really, I've really, I really struggled with this this week in prayer. I really did. I spent a lot of time coming to this kind of understanding and point of how challenging 
is it really in our modern day culture to build and to see Jesus build a multicultural church? Let me give you a couple of reasons why I think unity is hard. Number one, you ready? Satan. The one reason why unity is hard is because Satan. Satan hates this kind of unity. Especially in the church. This is how God gets glory and he wants to... He wants to obscure it. At its core, listen, to build a multicultural church is a spiritual battle. And we should always be aware that Satan is is working in and through people to try and undo it. We can't be a divided church and reach a divided world. We must be a united church to reach a divided world. Here's the second reason unity is so hard. Pride. 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 Racial, political, Educational characteristics tend to become parts of our identity. And then they become what sets us apart from others. And they make us significant. Anytime you feel significant, you feel proud about that. So if your racial, political, or educational characteristics set you apart, then your racial, political, educational characteristics become something you're proud about. And we, we pride attempts to resist anything that removes that distinction. Again, let me ask you to consider something real quick. What makes up your core identity right now? What defines you? I'm Hispanic. I'm white. I'm black. I went to this school. I'm rich. I got a PhD. I ran a marathon. Which, by the way, it's been a while since I've complained about that one. What other thing are you allowed to socially in, 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 in America to brag about and it not be a big deal? Like, can I just say, like, I got 140 IQ, 140 sticker on the back of my car. You know, like, 26.2. Okay, well, good. Okay, nothing else you can do in society you can brag about. But all of a sudden, you get a marathon done and you can just brag about it. It's socially acceptable to brag about that you just killed yourself for 26.2 miles. Right? I'm going to put on like a 100K. I made 100,000 this last year, except I didn't because I'm a pastor, okay? And I'll never see that. So, so, so we, we, we put these stickers to distinguish us, if you will. See, pride grows out of, out of defining yourself primarily by things about you that set you apart from others. But when pride exists, there's no unity. Let me read you a quote. You ready? Racial tensions are rife with pride. The pride of white supremacy, the pride of black power, the pride of intellectual analysis, the pride of anti-intellectual scorn, the proud of pride of loud verbal attack, the pride of despising silence, the pride that feels secure, and the pride that masks fear. Where pride holds sway, there's no hope for the kind of listening and patience and understanding and openness to correction that mature relationships require. That's a quote from an African-American pastor named Chris Green. He says, we have skin issues because we have sin issues. We have skin issues because we have sin issues. Here's number three. Unity is so hard because of preference. Preference. The church I just came from was a very multicultural church. The church that was serving before that was in Gainesville, Georgia, called Free Chapel. It was a very multicultural church. And one day I was standing up getting ready to preach, and I had this epiphany. I mean, total epiphany. Because we had people in our church that were the Southern Baptists. 
Okay? And when you go to any church with the SBC people, they sing boisterously. I mean, they sing. But when it comes time for the message, they take out their notebook and they take copious notes, amazing notes. You go to their bookstore, Lifeway, which is now closing down. Lifeway, of course, not online, but, you know, the physical stores, which is crazy what's happening with the whole world and reading and vulture, you know, yeah, all that whole deal. But nonetheless, you go to a church and you got the SBC brother right there and he's going to give you a, a, a shouted uh punctuated amen every now and again. Amen, you know, amen. You know, like you always, you, you go to a Southern Baptist church, you're going to get one short amen from somebody. It may be the guy in the parking lot and maybe the, the person changing diapers in the nursery, but you're going to get one amen. You know, it's like, oh, somebody stole my car. Amen. You know, it's like, whoa, no. So th- that was really different from our African-American members that were at the church because the African-American members in the church, when they talk to me in the sermons, okay, some of them talk back while I'm preaching in full sentences, okay, like with full clauses. I'm talking like a whole parse diagram sentences, like verb clauses with questions. I, I don't know if I'm supposed to stop and answer their question. Like, I mean, can, I, can we have this dialogue and communication, you know? And now I contrast that with our Asian members, who are some of my favorite worshipers, by the way. You want to you see worship, go to Asia in some way. I was watching a whole row of Asians. I think they were Koreans at our last church, and they were worshiping, and they, were, they weren't just singing, folks. They were shouting the worship songs. But then you'd get up to preach, and they'd say nothing during the sermon. Well, that bothered me. Thinking, what's wrong? <laughs> Am I talking too fast? What's the deal here? Like, is it not translating? And they said, no, in our culture, when authority speaks, you don't talk. You don't say anything. You sit there and listen. When authority has communication, you, it's disrespectful. I, I, I compare that to a friend I have who has a friend who's a missionary in Tokyo. He's talking about the Japanese, and he says, if you look at the faces of the Japanese believers in worship, they're extremely expressive, but everything they do is a whisper. Everything in the church is a whisper, and he asked him why, and he said, we want to express our hearts to obey God by our emotions, but we don't want to distract others from doing the same. So they just use all these emotional expressions, but whisper when they do that. Now contrast that with some of our members who stretch before they come to church because if you ain't sweating, you ain't praising, okay? I mean, you're doing back stretches, you're doing hammy stretches, okay? If you ain't sweating, you ain't praising, you know? You compare that with a new group and then some of y'all, we got people in the church who don't know what they're doing. I like how T- Tim Hawkins describes the progression, right? He says they come in, they're real, they're real uh, conservative but they start with the elbow flap. You know, they're starting with the elbow flap worship and they move from the elbow flap to hold the TV set and, you know, and they're worshiping in the TV set they're holding the TV set then they move to the big screen the widescreen TV and they're holding the widescreen TV and they're worshiping like this and then they they go to mime in a box you know mime in a box and they're miming in the box and then they're going to village people you know and the village people goes to Rocky and then the Rocky goes to touchdown you know it's all the way up and then you got the charismatic ladies that are you know constantly washing the windows you know they're moving and dueling light bulbs and then there again you got your Asians again they're giving high fives to Jesus you know they're up at top but, but there's this whole progression and desire that we all worship in different ways. We all look in different ways. And, and I didn't even bring in our Hispanic brothers. We had Hispanic ministry at our last church. We got done with two services. I walked down to the Hispanic ministry. They're just finishing up their first song of the first worship set. Because if you ain't in church for four and a half hours, you ain't been to church. So, so here's my question. Which one of those is God's favorite style of worship? Amen is your answer. Amen is your answer. It's all. It's all. So let me say this. In order to be a part of a multicultural church, you've got to be willing to be uncomfortable sometimes with people not doing things the way you do things. 
that we are going to be comfortable with being multicultural. Vince Pittman, he said, the way you know that you're a part of a multicultural church is that you often feel uncomfortable. If you don't feel uncomfortable, you're not a part of a multicultural church. That you're going to feel uncomfortable. Uncomfortable. Remember, I told you people, a lot of people want a multicultural church or a multicolored church more than a multicultural church. I was thinking about this week when I was reading this text. Do you know how we know that multiculturalism was an issue in the church? Because so much of the epistles, Paul's letters, he talks about food. Now listen, food isn't an issue in a homogenous church. Everybody eats the same thing. But why is he talking about food all the time? He's talking about food in every letter. He's communicating about food. Like you just eat your kosher meal and be happy when it's homogenous. But when you got Gentiles showing up at the potluck, they start bringing in different dishes like squirrel souffle and sausage casserole. And the Jews are like, whoa, 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 what's going on? See, listen, whenever the Bible talks about food, what you need to do in modern America is just substitute in music. So, so take food and just put in music. It's, it's, it's our modern day food. In other words, we could say it this way. If you want a diverse sanctuary, you've got to have a diverse dinner table. I cannot tell you how many prayers I've prayed. Lord, give us some color and some multicultural people on our DP worship team. Prayed with my face in the carpet. Lord, send them, please. God, do it. We want accurate representation of a multicultural reality in the culture that you and I live in, the melting pot called Atlanta, Georgia. Here's the f- fourth one, apathy. Unity's hard because of apathy. I think this is a big one, but I'm going to spend the shortest amount of time on it. It's just a big one. It's just easier to not do this. When we try this, it gets difficult. You get hurt. You get misunderstood. I will get more response from this message than any other thing I preach this month. Some people say I said too much. Others say I didn't say enough. But some will say, why'd you say that? Why'd you not say that? And it's easier sometimes just throw up your hand and say, man, we'll just be, let's, let's just forget it. But the glory of Jesus Christ and the success of the Great Commission is worth it. So we keep on pressing on. We keep on pressing on. Here's number five, a lack of empathy. Unity's hard because of a lack of empathy. Paul tells us that we should bear each other's burdens. So many of you, especially in the majority culture, here's what you need to say. I'm a majority culture in this church. Here's what I should say. I need to go to someone in the minority and I need to say, help me to understand the way you feel. Help me to understand why you think that way. James tells us we should be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. Could you think of a better topic in the church than to put that verse to work? If this is a place to apply that verse, yeah, there's room for you to speak, but he said be slow to speak. What that means is don't never speak. It just means that you're listening more than you're talking. I'm listening more than I'm talking. You seek to understand more than you seek to be understood. That's what love does. I want to understand you. To listen to someone is to love them in the 21st century. To really listen to them is to really, really love them. See, it's hard for me to love when I'm so busy trying to defend myself. (laughs) I can't love when I'm trying to defend myself. We don't want a church that focuses so much on the vertical relationship, as important as that is while neglecting the pain of the horizontal relationships. See, we can't, listen, hear me. You can't focus so much on the robust relationship with God that's awesome between you and God, while at the same time neglecting the pain of what's not right with you and another brother, another sister. Didn't Jesus forbid this? Look what he said in Matthew 5, 23 and 24. Therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar, 
and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you? It didn't say that, that you had something against them. It didn't say you had something against them. It said they had something against you. My God, this, but, like we read this kind of stuff in the Sermon on the Mount, but living this out is hard. He says, if they've got something against you, and this shows you that Jesus understood pastors because he said, leave your gift there at the altar and first go and be reconciled to them. So he understood, just leave it there. Okay, just go ahead and put your offering there. Jesus understood pastors. It's good. I know you want you to be reconciled, but leave your money right there. Now you go and be reconciled to them and then you come back. And when you come back, the money will still be there and we'll take it from you and reach people with the gospel. Okay, that's what he says. Be reconciled to them. So I just want to say to you, those of you in the minority culture in our church, I know there are times that people in this nation and maybe even in this church have been blind to some of the struggles you've had to go through. I want to tell you from our standpoint and the authority of this congregation and leadership, we don't want to be that way. We want to walk with people who are from totally different cultures through these things. Share your burdens like it's our burden. Fight together for each other because that's what family does. We can be together. Here's the next one, unforgiveness. Paul tells us later in Ephesians 4, I'm almost finished, that failure to bestow forgiveness is one of Satan's main weapons of gaining a foothold. Listen, a failure to quickly forgive is how strife keeps going. Y'all focus in just here. Just let me tell you a lie. I feel this from the Lord this week. Let me tell you a lie that, that people who get caught in the clutches of Satan's hold in this area of their life, unforgiveness, this is what happens. The lie we start to believe is I can't forgive you until I know that you know how much you've hurt me. I can't forgive you until I know that you know how much you've hurt me. It's like Gandhi said. Remember Gandhi, he was reflecting on Jesus' teaching and he said if we insist on justice always being an eye for an eye, he said eventually the whole world will be blind. Somebody's got to break the cycle. And if I believe that I can't forgive somebody until they know how much they've really hurt me, uh, let's play this out in marriage. The wife hurts her husband. She repents, she asks for forgiveness, but he still doesn't think that she understands the pain she caused him. Now there are two sides to this. Maybe, maybe she doesn't. Maybe she doesn't understand the pain she really caused him. And she in love needs to patiently seek to understand that. But this is the key. If the husband makes his forgiveness of her conditional on her understanding everything about his pain, then number one, he'll be holding himself captive to a standard that she will likely never meet. And number two, what he's saying is, I can't forgive you until you felt bad enough for hurting me because that's the only way you'll pay for your sin. And that's not forgiveness. That's not forgiveness. Forgiveness is extending grace even when somebody doesn't deserve it. Forgiveness is extending grace even when somebody doesn't desire it. The greatest teaching on this, of course, is from Jesus. He said, turn the other cheek. He said, when somebody slaps you in the face, please, smacking in the face meant that they were insulting the relationship. It wasn't killing them. Like no judo instructor ever said, you want to kill somebody, slap, go for the face. Get them in the face. No, face is like a, it's a relationship. So you know what he says? He says, when somebody slaps you in the face, you got two options, three options. Number one, you can hit them back in the face. Number two, you can passively take it in the face. Woo! Passively. Or number three, you can turn the other cheek and say, I'm not overlooking what you did to me, but I'm coming back to you with a new side of this relationship to seek out reconciliation again. That's what I'm doing. Unforgiveness can't stand. It can't stand. 
So I gave you six things to keep us from being able to achieve this. It's no wonder our society can't do it, right? But the whole message of Ephesians is this. What the law is unable to accomplish, the power of a new life in the gospel accomplishes it. So I'll give you the last two things. Number one, the gospel shows us that we are not ultimately defined by our culture. Trusting in Jesus doesn't remove our cultural distinctives. It just shows us that we're not ultimately defined by our cultural distinctives. We are defined by who we are in Christ. Now, I want to be careful here. God created the rich beauties of culture. He did. And God's not on a mission to erase cultural identities. It's just that God gives you an identity that goes beyond and deeper than any of your cultural distinctives. In saying that Christ has created one new man, Paul is introducing a concept theologians call a third race. Remember, first race, I'm white. Second race is what I'm not. But third race is who I am in Christ. It's not that my first race disappears. It's that my third race, who I am in Jesus, becomes more formative than my first race. My first race becomes insignificant enough to me that I can lay it aside. I thought about it this week, folks. I've never thought about this in my life. First Corinthians 9, Paul said, I become all things to all men that I might save some. He said to the Jew, I become a Jew. Boom, it hit me. How does a Jew become a Jew to become a Jew to reach Jews? That makes no sense. He's already a Jew. What he's saying is my Jewishness is so light in my life and not defining that I actually have to put my Jewishness back on when I'm around Jews so I can reach the Jews. Is your whiteness like that? Is your blackness like that? Is your Hispanicness like that? So light that I just take it on and off that I might save some, that I might reach those around me. He says in Galatians 3.27, For as many of you who are baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, no male or female. You're all one in Christ Jesus. You're all one. And if you're a Christ, if you belong to Christ, you're Abraham's seed, your heirs according to the promise. If you still feel division with other believers who love Jesus, it just shows that the gospel hasn't gone deep enough in your soul yet. For example, if you find somebody who shares your political convictions and that makes you feel more at ease with them than the fact that they share Christ with you, that shows that the gospel has not gone deep enough in your heart. Let me say it this way. If you feel more kinship with other white people or other black people or other Hispanic people than you do with followers of Jesus, it just shows you that the gospel has not gone deep enough in you yet. Craig, is that a problem in the New Testament? Yeah. The apostle Peter had a racial compromise. Paul comes to him in Galatians 2 and confronts him and says, listen, Peter, I love you, but you need to understand the gospel better. It takes a lot of nerve to say to Peter, you need to understand the gospel better. Peter was the rock, remember? Peter was the church's chief witness, remember? It takes guts, but it tells you that even the best of us have places where the gospel needs to go deeper. The best of us have places where the gospel needs to reach further. And finally and fifthly, the gospel teaches us to subjugate our preferences for other people's salvation. To subjugate our preferences. How many of you And how many of Jesus' preferences did he lay down when he came to rescue you? He laid down all of them. Like, think about how fiercely hypocritical this is. We are going to stand in church worshiping a Savior who gave up all of his rights for us while we insistently and simultaneously insist that everyone else worship the Savior the way we want to worship the Savior. Think about how hypocritical that is. He gave down all of his rights. So listen, 
I'm going to worship with you regardless of if I like the song, if it's my cultural song or not. I'm not going to hold on to my rights and privileges if Jesus didn't hold on to his rights and privileges to rescue me. And can I say to those of you who are, quote unquote, in the minority in our culture, especially those who are not a part of the majority culture, even at Dwelling Place, you've come to this church and you've chosen to make this church your home. Can I just say, I know it's not been easy for you, but I believe that you're doing and what you're doing is glorifying Jesus and it's a great benefit to the Great Commission. And it's an open road to see the multicultural distinctives and the multicultural church build. When Paul went in to plant a new church in a new city, he didn't plant a church for the Jews on the north side, a church for the Gentiles on the back side. He planted a church right in the middle. And he told them that that vertical relationship with God should lead to the horizontal relationships with each other. He sat down. And I want to tell you, that's what you're doing. If you're a part of the minority, you could be worshiping more easily with people that are more like you, so to speak, in your culture across town. But you're doing the hard thing, and that's being a part of a multicultural church. And I applaud you. And I want to encourage the rest of us. This is what I want to put in your mind. This is what I want you to see. When we talk about action, go to that next slide. I want us to move beyond mere awareness, and I want us to go to engagement. Here's what we do in the church. First of all, the first stage is ignorance. I don't know. I don't know what I don't know. Number two, I get awareness. I get awareness that my life needs to be more multiculturally connected. I need to reach people and be intentional. But here's what we do in the church. We think that we're playing shoots and ladders. We think that when we get awareness, we shoot and ladder down the gospel community, but you don't. The secret to get gospel community is letter C, which is intentionality. If you get awareness that something's wrong, I need to be challenged, then I've got to be intentional to go build a friendship with somebody that's not like me. I've got to reach out to somebody and ask them to lunch after DP with somebody that's not like me, a culture that's not like me. I'm going to be intentional about it. Why? Because, not because we want different colored faces at DP on the weekend. No, the point is that we know and love each other. And the weight of that shows the world the far exceeding greatness of God's gospel. We want to live multicultural lives, not host multicultural events. We want our lives to be connected. Thank you so much for listening to this week's message. If you would like more information about our church, be sure to visit us on the web at dwellingplacemovement.org.